Welcome to the Keep It Moving Podcast. From an aimless kid to a Navy veteran traveling the world, join Andy and his guest in discussing the before, the during, and the after of military life and more. Here's your host, Andy Lane. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Keep It Moving Podcast with Andy Lane. Our special guest today is retired Senior Chief Fire Controlman Curtis Morgan. How's it going? I'm doing well. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Thanks for being on the show this week. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's an honor. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Give them like a snapshot of your career, some highlights, some lowlights, whatever you feel like talking about. I would say snapshot of my career. I, I joined the Navy when I was basically had a, we'll just call it a failed attempt at college right out of high school on a percussion scholarship. And then my dad gave me weeks to figure my stuff out because he didn't want me to stay at home. So I worked my options, being from a small town in Kansas. And my grandfather always, my grandfather served a war too. He always spoke about how he wished he had stayed in the Navy and regretted ever getting out. And so I ended up joining the Navy. 10 days later, I was in boot camp. And then four years later, I retired. You said 24 years? I did 24 years and two days. That's intense. That's a long ass time. Yeah. I came in April 29th of 1996 and I got out April 30th of 2020. Where was your boot camp? Great Lakes. Oh, okay. Yeah, back then they only had Great Lakes. They had just shut down Orlando. Yeah, they had just shut down Orlando. I think that was the one that shut down before. I heard there was one in San Diego at one point. Yeah, I don't know when they shut that one down. I'm not for sure. That was before I came in. The only one that was open when I came when I joined was Great Lakes. So I didn't have any options. That's fair. Same. <laughs> yeah, I, I would have definitely picked Orlando, probably or San Diego, but yeah, yeah. I mean, Great Lakes. It was cold. That wind coming off Lake Michigan was ridiculous. And oh yeah, <laughs> everything's ice. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hard pass. Yeah, hard pass. And then that, my A school was in Great Lakes for like a year after that, so I just stayed there for a full year. And then my C school was in San Diego. So you just went across the street like the rest of us. Yep, sure did. No, so I mean, like I said, 24 years after that, I I retired, and then um, I kind of timed it to the day, so I would retire right at my 24 year mark because you always get out at the end of the month. So I made sure my last reenlistment was in April, so that way I would get out in April, not give them any more time for free. I didn't know that. So you get after your 20 year mark, you get two and a half percent in uh, retirement for every year you do over 20. Okay. So say I did 24 years, so now I get 60 percent retirement instead of 50 percent retirement if I did 20. Of my base pay, right? You're making the big money? No, I'm not making the big money. I mean, the, the big money really comes in with your disability. If you're able to get a high disability rating, that really helps you out there. The retirement, I mean, my, my retirement checks, like, maybe around 3000 a month. In Hawaii, that's not even livable, so. You said 3000 a month is not livable? In Hawaii, no. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Not on Oahu. Like, if you were on Kauai or Big Island or somewhere like that, you could, you could probably get away with it, but not in Oahu. I'm trying to think of the conversion here in New York because I don't make much more than you. I make, like, 4000 a little over a month before any disability or anything like that. Yeah. And it's painful. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Especially when I have a son and I'm taking care of his mother as well. She doesn't work. You know, they're both staying with me. I, I pay for all of that as well. And my son has autism, so that's... More insurance, more therapy, more cars, more driving, more gas. It's all more. Yeah, you don't realize, like, what has to go into having, like, even just one kid alone. And then you put more on top of that. Like, people don't understand the concept of, like, it's not just about the money, although it's about the time. Yeah, and it's about cost of living as well, you know? I mean, I was told, I don't know if this is fact or not, but I was told that Hawaii gets their oil from Russia. 
Oh. So for like gas prices and stuff, it varies quite a bit. But um, like the food, the inflation over the last year, I think we're over a seven percent inflation. Holy shit! For this last year, which is like the highest it's been in in thirty years. That's for the American economy in general. So it's just that's a killer, and like the pay has not been increased to compensate for inflation. Right. So they're all difficult issues with our economy and where it stands. But living in Hawaii and the median house, I believe, is over eight hundred thousand. It's like eight thirty or eight forty last time I checked. Eight hundred and forty thousand. That's for a median house. I mean, you're looking at like fifteen hundred square feet, maybe it needs renovations badly. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. I know my ex wife bought a house out here in um, Long Island. And it, you know, it's a little bit of a fixer up, from like nineteen twenty something, nineteen twenty eight, I want to say. And they paid like north of a half a million dollars for it. I'm just like, I can't even imagine. Like, cause you know, it's two stories. They got like a small backyard, a driveway, and all that stuff. Like, I lived in Hawaii. Like, <laughs> I remember seeing some of those houses. Yeah, it, it's gone up a lot the last few years. Like, um, so last year there was a house in Mililani, which you're familiar with, that, in the middle of Oahu. Yeah. And I put an offer on that at like. One million ten thousand, which they were asking like nine hundred and eighty thousand, nine hundred and ninety thousand. It was around sixteen hundred square feet, three bed, two bath, one story, but it was nice. Didn't need renovations. Oh, okay. Um, had solar, I believe. It was a really nice house, and uh, I got outbid from a guy offering one point one million in cash. 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 Holy that tells you what the market's like out here. I've been searching for a house for four years and I've just struck out. Like it's that's crazy. I gave up. I was just like, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. I'm not even looking. The housing market, it just keeps going up too. I'm just like, I'm done. You almost have to buy just land and build. Yeah, but unfortunately, you can't use your GI bill for that. Oh, really? Nope. You can't use your GI bill on land and then build, and you can't use it on a boat either. Oh, you're talking about the VA home loan? Oh, yeah. Not the VA. Not the GI bill. Yeah. The VA. Sorry. Yeah, you can't use your VA home loan on, on land or, or, or a boat. It has to be a home that's already up, and it has to pass a VA inspection. Damn. So it can't be like one of those that you're just going to tear down and then rebuild. It has to actually pass an inspection. I heard there's a VA renovation loan now. Like, if you're going to do like a... Some remodeling and stuff? Yeah, like two rooms in your house or something, like a kitchen and a, a bedroom. Yeah. They briefly mentioned that at, at one of my TAPS class. I mean, I went to two or TGPS. They changed the name. They went from TAPS to TGPS. Now I think it's back to TAPS. <laughs> Why not? Just pick one. <laughs> I don't know. I went to the class twice in the last year that I was getting out, and they varied so wildly. It was really hard to, I mean, one class was really focused on resumes and interviews and setting up your LinkedIn profile. And then the next one was talking about your VA benefits mainly, but one thing they didn't ever discuss was really the process your last year of separating what, everything you needed to do, which I thought would have been tremendous help having gone through that. And then hindsight, looking back at it. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think one of the biggest things that nobody really tells you is like, especially if you're going for like a job with a clearance or, or something like that, and you're trying to transition, they don't really tell you that there's a window that you can get hired in. Right. Right. And like, that's huge when, you know, you're applying for all these jobs and you're like, man, it's coming down to crunch time. This big marathon is now, you know, coming down to a sprint and it's like, I need a job. Like I, I can't just go and, you know, be homeless. I think that's why a lot of people resort to using their GI bill as soon as they get out because they're like, nobody's hiring me, you know, whatever. And they don't realize that within 120 days, anybody can hire you. Yeah, for sure. And then, and another thing, like, a lot of people think, oh, well, I retired, so there's a 180-day requirement that I can't apply for, like, a, a GS job, right? Right. But, like, I got hired. They just submitted a waiver for me, and it was it went through easy. Like, no problem. No big deal. 
but some places aren't willing to do a waiver. You know, they don't want to advertise the, the process of doing the waiver is the job has to be advertised publicly. And then they have to, you know, basically write up a report on why you were the best selection and, you know, all the interviews and all the other people's information. And in some places just don't want to do it. They just want you to wait six months and then come back. Like when I retired from the shipyard, they wanted me to wait six months and then come back. But CMS APAC at Camp Smith, they were like, hey, we'll do a waiver for you. And so I was like, okay, let's do it. And so they did a waiver for me. And then a few months after that, the shipyard hit me up and said, hey, you want to come back and work for us? And I was like, sorry, I'm kind of loyal. These guys were willing to do a waiver and you weren't. So Right. Give it to who's willing to, to help you out. Yeah. And also, yeah. Yeah. And going back to what we were originally talking about, they don't ever discuss with you when you should go see like a VA rep and how much time they need to file your paperwork. And, you know, like I went and saw a VA rep to file my, like my disability claim like a year before I got out. Smart. She's like, why are you coming and seeing me? Like, I, I can't do anything with you now. It's like, I just want you to review this and tell me what I need to do. Tell me what I should do or what I should have looked up at. And she just did a quick scan. She's like, yeah, you need to go get seen for this, 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 and this. And I was like, okay. So I did those within the year because apparently they really can't, they have a hard time filing anything that you haven't been seen for within the last year. Oh. And then also the VA rep, like she wanted my paperwork. I thought it was a hundred days prior to getting out. It turned out it was like a hundred working days prior to me getting out. <laughs> so when I gave her my paperwork, she was like, I'm not going to get this filed in time. So it actually took me about six months after I got out before I actually got my initial rating and any pay. But fortunately, you get that back pay. I actually just saw my final doctor's appointment on this last Monday mm. so that I can finish my claim. Yeah. And I'm like, I've been out since December. <laughs> Yeah, that's another thing, like how quickly they get you in, especially during the pandemic and everything. One thing I would recommend, though, is if like my first the first doctor I went and had a physical done with, like review, look up the doctors online. Right. Right. Check them out. See who they are, because I looked up this guy and he had been practicing medicine longer than I'd been alive. <laughs> he probably should have retired a long time ago. And when we were in there when I'm doing my initial physical. He was asking me, you know, so tell me about your back. And before I could even start to tell him about it. He's asking me another question. I don't know what information he was getting, but it just seemed like he was just going through the motion. So I contacted the VA and I was like, Hey, I've, you know, I talked to some people that were retired and they went through the process and they didn't have that issue. And they're like, they didn't look at this or this. And I was like, no, they didn't look at anything. And so I contacted the VA and I, I vetted my frustrations with them and they did an investigation. And then they called me back a couple of weeks later and they're like, hey, do you want to do another physical? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, do you want to do it with the same doctor? And I was like, no. Like, why would I want to do that? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And so they set me up with a new doctor, got a new physical. But from there on out, I would whenever I got that appointment letter in the mail, I would look it up and like do my research on the doctor. And if I just didn't feel comfortable going and seeing them for whatever I was going and seeing them for, like if something based on their history or reviews online, then I would just cancel the appointment. And then they would, then I would get another letter. It was never the same doctor. It would always be somebody different. That's smart. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. I would just say, Hey, I got an appointment. I got another appointment that day. I can't make it. And they would just cancel it and send me another one. So I had a, an optometry appointment in Queens, which is, it's not too far. It's like 45 minutes from where I live. Mm -hmm. It's really not that bad. It's traffic mostly. They canceled the first one because of the crazy snowstorm that we had here. And then the second one, they canceled just randomly. <laughs> and then they were like, hey, you need to contact us. So I contacted LHI and I'm like, hey, um, what's up? And they're like, oh, we need your availability. Like how far you're willing to travel? I'm like, do you mean to tell me there's no optometrists in Long Island? Yeah. <laughs> in the entire portion of Long, there's nobody? 
So they gave me this appointment in Brooklyn. Mm. I'm like, man, I'm like, Brooklyn's pretty far. Like, yeah, yeah. My aunt lives there. Like, I, I know where, where that is. Yeah. I looked up the address and I was like, holy shit, this is at Coney Island. It's an hour and 45 minutes with no traffic. Mm. And I was like, fuck it. You guys are paying me, you know, gas money and mileage and all that stuff to go. I mean, it was a huge pain in the ass because they dilated my eyes. It was just a disaster. <laughs> Drive two hours, then you gotta wait. Then you gotta go to the optometry appointment. Then you gotta wait like three hours for your eyes to return to normal before you can drive another two hours back. Seriously, and I had to get gas too, so I was just like, man, <laughs> I don't even know what to do with. My, and it was twenty degrees that day. Rock those awesome sunglasses. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, my, those are my least favorite. But um, when I went in there, the optometrist was uh, he was nice, but he was very um very direct and his assistant like scanned the prescription on my glasses and she was like you barely have a prescription here and I said yes but there's a prescription there right and she goes yeah and I said okay cool I didn't have those before I joined the military Mm. and she's like I don't understand I said my eyesight got worse while I was in the military and that's all you need to know yeah and she was like oh okay I see your point yeah I think because you're in New York and it's so densely populated and there's not a lot of military there. I mean, I've been in New York for fleet week. It's crazy. Let me know if you ever come back out. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. I got some friends that live out in Long Island as well. Nice. Around Concomon area. Oh, okay. It's not far. That's actually maybe 15 minutes up the road. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so, um, I feel fortunate that we're in, that I'm in Hawaii and I was able to retire from here because it's so densely military populated on Oahu and there's so many doctors that deal with stuff like this. And even the doctors were able to give me like tips and advice and, hey, if they don't file this, then you need to go back and fill out this form and send this in or, you know, they deal with it so much. And then Tripler, Tripler in comparison to a lot of VA hospitals, my little sister is a nurse and she's told me about the hospitals in the Midwest where around where she works. And, you know, I can't say that I would... I would probably even go just because it takes so long. And like, she's heard a lot of bad stories about the quality of care that the VA hospitals give out there that, I mean, I feel fortunate that I'm here that I can use Tripler, but. Tripler is awesome. Yeah. I'd probably have alternate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd probably have alternate insurance. I mean, I, I have alternate insurance anyway. Yeah. Which is good though. Cause Tripler's they're pretty on point with their care there. Yeah. I've actually received better care from the VA side than I have the active, the act when I was on active duty on that side. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. 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 Cool. I remember we drove up to Tripler. Um, remember that whole ballistic missile scare? Mm-hmm. I never got the alert for that, but me either. My ex-wife got it. She like <laughs> she like kicked me. She's like, "Get up!" And I'm like, "What?" And she's like, "There's a ballistic missile inbound." I'm like, "Bullshit!" <laughs> like I call bullshit. Yeah, I didn't get it either. I was outside. I was washing my cars, and the neighbors came out and like talking to me about it. And I was like, "I have no idea what you guys are referring to." And they showed me on their phone. And I was like. I didn't get it. Must be real. Shouldn't or I can't be real. Yeah. Like I don't know. <laughs> My neighbors were gone. He was like an army staff sergeant, and he like packed his whole family in the truck, and he was gone. <laughs> Hanging out in the Hrana tunnel, waiting for yeah. impact. <laughs> I'm not sure. We went up. We went up to Tripler. You know, highest point. Whatever. Yeah. No logic there, but any safe place you're not getting to, unless you go up to um. Oh, where's the old World War II bunkers? There's a Kailua. Yeah, the ranch out there. You're talking about the pillboxes. Yeah run up that hill real quick and hide in the pillboxes. I mean, that's really the only legitimate, I guess the sewer system, maybe. Yeah. That was crazy. They ended up releasing a, uh, a news article on it or like a, an apology or something for that. No, no. Like the, the news, the Hawaiian news cut did a whole like segment on it and then released it. Yeah. You could watch on the YouTube. I think that's hilarious. I know people still talk about it. I'm like, yep, I was there. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I hear about it every once in a while. We have a new guy that just got here, and he was like, were you here when they did the ballistic missile defense? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> moving on. <laughs> yeah, moving on. Moving on, IS-2. Moving on. Oh, no. Oh, no. Speaking of second classes, I uh, I went to the gas station, like, upstreet from my house, and I popped in to get, like, a bang or something to drink or whatever, and there was a guy in NWUs. Wow. I was like, what the Recruiter? Fuck? Yeah, uh, well, yeah, I didn't think about that at the time because it was like nine o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, hey, I'm like, is there a naval station around here? He goes, no, man, I'm a recruiter. I'm like, yeah. oh, shit. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. When I worked in uh, Miami at the recruiting district there, I worked at the MEPS and Doral. There was a lot of a lot of the recruiters would go. They were from New York. And so they would go just back and forth between New York and Miami. Oh, yeah. Florida plates everywhere here. Yeah. So let's talk about your career history a little bit. Like what ships were you on? So I started out on the USS Shiloh. They were stationed in San Diego at the time. I reported out there the end of 97, actually. And then I was going to sea school. And then as soon as I graduated sea school, pretty much, I was on the ship for only like a month or two. And then in January in 98, I don't know if you remember, but Saddam Hussein, I don't even know if you were born then. But <laughs> wow. Saddam Hussein was being a jerk. And so they were sending troops and ships over there to do tomahawk strikes. They had a ship out in Japan, the John S. McCain, who's been infamous for their, their little incident at sea. Oh, yeah. A few years ago. At that time, John S. McCain was out in Japan and they called a, they basically called Third Fleet and they were like, hey, we need tomahawk techs because they only had a chief and a second class. And so they talked to the Shiloh and everybody in my work center was either married or getting married. So I volunteered to go under the condition that I would return to the Shiloh, that it was only going to be TAD. And so that basically meant that I was going to do a deployment on McCain, then Shiloh was going to pull in. I was just going to walk across the pier and go on another deployment. That was 21 at the time. I didn't have any, no responsibilities. So I was cool with it. Nice. <laughs> so I go TAD, we get back, and then the Shiloh never pulls in. Long story short, the Shiloh never pulls in, and I can't even get a hold of them. And I'm basically in Japan for it's like two months living out of a sea bag. And every week, the admin is just like, oh, yeah, you're flying out next week. And then the next week, it's like, oh, yeah, you're flying out next week. And finally, I got so sick of it. I was like, look, either send me there or keep me here, but I'm just tired of this. And so they ended up, oh, you're willing to stay here? Oh. Sign this piece of paper. Oh, no. So, <laughs> yeah, so I signed it. And I ended up staying in Japan for about three years. And then I went to the Kearney out in Mayport, Florida. Okay. So I deployed, I believe it was twice. We deployed twice on McCain. I know we deployed in 98, we deployed in 2000, but I think we also did like a, a booze cruise, which counted as a deployment, but we didn't go anywhere besides 7th Fleet, so I really don't count that one. And then basically we just went around like Thailand, Hong Kong, Singapore, Australia, and just hanging out. So, but we were away from home port for 90 days, so it counted as a sea surface. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was funny. So yeah, we deployed in 98 for Saddam Hussein, and then we had that booze cruise in 99, deployed again in 2000, and then I ended up leaving there like the very end of 2000, and then I went to Mayport for the Carning DDG-64. They're in Spain now, I believe. And then I did two years there, and then we deployed right after September 11th. So that was interesting because I had just been in New York for Fleet Week. Oh, yeah. And then I'm we're in Mayport, and then September 11th happens. That was just insane for us. That's huge, yeah. Yeah, and so then we deployed him in March, the following year of uh, September 11th, and we went out there till October we came back. And then I left there in 2002, and then I went to the brig in Miramar and worked at staff there for two years. What is that? Like, what do you do? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, the Naval Consolidated Brig in Miramar at the Marine, Marine Corps base. You basically babysit. I mean, you're just walking around, making sure no one's 
they have like a disciplinary segregation unit where you're you have to like check on people if they're on like suicide watch every so often and those are the ones the bad kids or the troublemakers and whatnot or then they have another housing unit that was back then it might be different now but back then they had like a pre-trial confinement unit so anybody that hadn't been adjudicated they were pending trial they would stay in that housing unit and then they had a female dorm and then they had other male dorms that were broken up based on their offense and like how much time they were getting at that time when i worked there they offered us what they called a sex offender treatment program so like majority of the prisoners there were sex offenders because they had a treatment program if they weren't or if they did not they didn't want to go to a sex offender treatment program or if they had a sentence that was like longer than six years they would either go to charleston south carolina if it was like under six years they'd go to the brig in leavenworth so it's over six years oh wow okay and so basically you're just you know trying to eliminate any contraband it could be anything from just counting silverware after after a meal to make sure you have all your silverware, just monitoring the PT or, you know, you're, you're transporting them to medical appointments, stuff like that. I mean, it's really just just babysitting. I remember the drop off. So Chesapeake, Virginia has their brig out there. Mm-hmm. And I remember doing the drop off process when I was stationed on board the Dwight D. Eisenhower. And you drive into like the garage door would come up, you drive in the van and then garage door would go down, you offload the detainee. Mm-hmm. So we would, you know, drop off the detainee and then I think it was like MAs that came out or something. I don't know, I'm not too sure. And then once that was all done, then they would roll the, the gates back up and we could drive out. But I remember doing that like three or four times. I'm like, this is such a process. <laughs> yeah, it is. And then like, I know when I was at Miramar, like our intake was a Marine, the Marines did our intake. And so it was, we had every branch of service at the brig in Miramar. We had army. So we had to have the same branch of service, but the the most amount of staff members we had were, we had air force staff members. We only had a few army, but it was mainly Navy and Marines. Oh, wow. Okay. And so, but they did our intake and then they were really strict on making sure the inmates that, you know, they're the detainees and they're brought in, they have every single item that's on the list. Cause there's, you know, there's a list and it's gotta be there. And so why did they remove the name tapes? Oh, they still had name tapes when I was there. I don't know why, like if they took them off since okay. like, I was there from 2003 to 2005. Okay. Cause I know in 2011, 10 or 11, somewhere in there, yeah, they were returning detainees without name tapes. Huh? That's interesting. Yeah, I don't know if it was just because, like, well, I guess they would get a different uniform inside, maybe? I don't know. Oh, you know, even when I was when I was at Miramar, even, like, the post-pre-trial confinement, like, the actual inmates, they, they still wore their military uniform. Okay. Like, while they were there. Yeah. They would just take off their rank and stuff. Makes sense. Yeah. So what do you prefer, uh, Southern California or, uh, or Hawaii? Hawaii. Really? Yeah, hands down. Hands down. Really? Yeah. How bad did the quarantine hit you guys? So it's ironic, like um, the week of my retirement was when the COVID break like hit. Like my retirement was like March 19th. Oh, <laughs> right at the beginning. Like, it was literally <laughs> the worst week possible. And they weren't <laughs> even going to do my ceremony except for my mom had flown out from Chicago all the way out. And she was already on island. And so they ended up I was supposed to be on the Missouri. I had like 20 friends flying out. It was going to be a big deal. We had hotel reservations and luau's and all this stuff and everything got canceled. And it was just in this little auditorium that the shipyard had. And it was only the chiefs, my mom, my son, his mom, uh, my mom's husband, and then um, whoever was participating in the ceremony. And that was the only people. And then my mom ended up flying out. They, they were going to get stuck on island. And so she flew out the very next day. 
fortunately, I was on terminal leave. So I just finished up my bachelor's degree. And then I was doing, inter- like, I got interviewed for this job while I was on terminal. And then I just waited. Like, basically, I got hired here at the end of August. Nice. Yeah, so it wasn't that bad at all. I didn't really notice. I just took those two months and like that I was basically two or three like months that I was waiting for all the paperwork and everything to go through after I'd finished my last class for my degree. And then I just uh, was just working out at home all the time. I got got back in like a little routine, you know, get up in the morning, get stuff ready. You know, like my son would be doing his like summer lessons or the, the end of the school, like online and stuff. And so I would just go upstairs and work out and practice piano or something just try to keep myself busy just getting a routine that was basically it so yeah that first couple of uh couple of weeks i would say month maybe yeah where everybody's like all right cool this is awesome i don't have to go anywhere i can stay home you know and then there was like that weird lull where people are like i'm depressed (laughs) i don't know what to do with my time but yeah the routine though I'm with you on that because once I figured out that like if you wake up and do the same, you know, make your bed, brush your teeth, you know, shower, the things that you don't really think about doing because like you just do them when you go to work or, you know, school or whatever. Like those are the things that kind of keep your day on track. Yeah, for sure. And then we were very fortunate in the fact that we have like a two story house with a little bit of a yard and a garage so we can kind of get separated. But for those that were, say, living in a two bedroom apartment or a studio or something, I probably would have lost my mind oh yeah i don't know how they did it (laughs) (laughs) i don't know how they did it (laughs) two floors is barely enough oh i know i know i mean we were at each other's throats i get having fever towards the end i was just like i was like i gotta get out of here you know and then i would go to work and and they were doing like a blue and gold shift so like one week i didn't have to be here but i would just come in anyway just to get out (laughs) yeah just to get out just to get out of the house and just to give them some space and oh yeah we had quarantine midshipmen when i was working at the naval academy and we had to go to the graduate hotel and feed them breakfast lunch and dinner so we drop off basically like bagged food but it was like good food that the hotel had prepared Mm -hmm. and so we would have to go door to door to all these hotel rooms and like drop food off and you know do like a a sanity check and make sure like people were still there because these were students who were who tested positive yeah and so i'm like cool i didn't test positive but i'm now being exposed to all of these kids who are you know who tested positive awesome yeah but we did that for like months where it was just like delivering food we still had to do uh like correspondence runs as like obviously the enlisted division from uh the building i worked in mm-hmm. we still had to go to work alternating days so like one of us would go and run the correspondence around the yard mm-hmm. which didn't make a whole lot of sense to me like you guys should probably get outside anyway and go carry your own shit like 100 feet yeah but you know whatever I don't get paid enough to make those decisions. True, true. But it was definitely nice, though, like on those days. Yeah, I had to shave and like comb my hair, but like, you know, uh, put a uniform on. But I'm like, whatever. Like, you know, it's it breaks up the monotony of like just sitting at home and, you know, YouTubing stuff or whatever. Yeah, you can only do that for so often. And then you start to feel like you're like Groundhog Day. It's just in circles. And then you're, you know, you can't stress enough the importance of getting out and getting some fresh air and sunlight and vitamin D and oh I know and after working with you like your work ethic is very precise (laughs) like you have a very type a personality like in a work mode I don't know you outside of you know with your family and stuff like that so yeah most people find it funny when they seem they hang out with me outside of work yeah because they're like I don't even think that you would you're not even the same person because like when I'm at work man I'm about work I'm about work and getting work done so we can have fun 
You know what I mean? And that's, I mean, I, I work hard, but I play harder. I like to. Oh yeah. It's funny because I've taken a lot of things away from people that I've, I've worked with or been around. And that's one of the things that I will forever remember you for is just that like no bullshit, just get it done. I don't care. Just get it done. Well, it wouldn't be just get it done. I mean, I did care. Cause there's a common thing when, when people think like, um, you know, the whole, the chiefs back, they say results, not excuses, you know, right. just get it done. Just get it done. Just get it done. But you have to get it done. Right. You know what I mean? You can't just throw some shit together and say, Hey, hey it's done. Like that's not going to fly. And that requires your senior leadership, you know, communicating expectations, letting them know your standards, making sure those are crystal clear, like what your expectations are of them, your timeline, so on and so forth. And that just takes a while. And a lot of times people don't really know, like you might see potential in somebody that they don't see in themselves. And so your level of expectation for them may be higher than their own level of expectation of what they can produce. Sometimes you got to push them a little bit harder to their limits. You might not know their limits until you, until you push them to the very edge. And then you're like, okay, that's it. Back off. It just takes some time to get to knowing one another. But I think I know what you're referring to as far as like when I was on, on Preble and probably people, you know, me being in combat or people complaining and whatnot. But there was definitely a period of time that it took like some adjustment and people getting to, you know, understand like where I was coming from and the level of expectation. And it, and it also didn't help that I was being pulled in so many different directions, you know. So like even division would come to me and they're like, hey, we feel that we don't even have an opportunity to speak with you because when you're walking down the hallway, you have so many things on your mind. I would never write anything down either, which is another mistake of mine. <laughs> and so I'm thinking about five different things I have to do. And then someone would come up to me and I'd be very short. I'd be like, Hey, I gotta go. I gotta go. You know? And so we would really like a time where we can sit down and talk to you. Cause once quarters was over, I was gone. I was out the door. I'd meet back up at 1230. What got done? Where are we staying in? Where we need to go? Let's go. And then back out again. And then hit them up at the end of the day. You know, as soon as you're done with all the X, Y, and Z, we're out. Like, I wouldn't keep them there for no reason. Like, if you're done with the work, I'm going to let you guys go. Period. I never had them sit around and just twiddle their thumbs. Like, I don't give a shit what the department head said. I don't even care what the XO said. I was I will take it on the chin. You're not going to sit around. And so... It was always really busy. And so like the division would come to me or the department would come to me and be like, hey, we really need a, a time where we can talk to you. So I would carve out like an hour every Wednesday and just sit down and talk to them and just kind of let it be like a, a free environment where, you know, I'm not chief anymore. I'm just Kurt. Talk to me. Vent your frustrations. Ask me, like, why are we doing this? This doesn't make sense. This is stupid. Feel free. I'm, there's not going to be any repercussions. And we would just have a sit down and just talk. And I could try to get them to understand, like, the chain of commands I view or what I was expecting from this certain project or why we did it this way or if they felt I wasn't listening to them. Like we wanted to do it this way, then that would be my opportunity to be like, okay, well, we couldn't do it that way because it violated certain safety protocols like X, Y, and Z. It just gave it an opportunity. And once we established that, we had a much more open communication and I felt that they trusted me more because I always had a plan. I had a plan, I had a backup plan, I had a tertiary plan, I had, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Right. Because <laughs> I was always thinking like, okay, well, if this guy gets in trouble or if I have a sailor that tests positive or if I have a sailor that gets pregnant or if I have a sailor that gets a DUI, like I would always plan what I was going to do in case I lost somebody or when somebody got in trouble for stealing at the next in Guam or something, I would always have a plan. 
<laughs> or how to get them back on track. It was just up to them to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah, but you had like a very tight knit team too. Like that's you know part of your job. True. Yeah, especially with our classification level of our job, it's kind of unique in that aspect. Cause there's really only a couple rates on the ship that are above secret. So yeah, that's very true. I mean, I was fortunate. Like, um, you know, Preble was. The strike team on Preble, I used to tell them that I used to always talk about the strike team that I was on when I was on Jonas McCain because that team meant a lot to me. And the reason because my chief was a guy named Dave Bush. He's a retired master chief now, and he works at the Slamix office in San Diego. (laughs) And my first class, I met him when he was a second class, was Jason Dunn. He was the master chief for PAC Norwest. He's getting ready to transfer. I'm not sure where he's going. But I was going to get out of the Navy until I met those two people. Like they had the biggest influence on my career because Dave was a chief and Jason was my first class at the time. I did not like the situation I was in. I didn't like the fact that I got put in Japan. I didn't like the fact that I wasn't getting cola for like two months. And then they finally just kept me there for three years. <laughs> Jesus. I wasn't happy with my chain of command at the time. We had a Tomahawk chief, but he left. And then our chief was mainly this GMC, who I didn't see eye to eye on at all. Like, didn't like it all. And I was I was going to get out, and I was actually going to join the Marine Corps right after that. Interesting. But um, I met Jason and Dave Bush and another guy, Chief One Officer Bob LaPlume. They really changed my complete outlook. You know, it was – I really understood and realized what it meant if you have an LPO – and a chief that care and take care of you, how much of a difference that can make in a junior sailor's life. That's why I wanted to stay. That's why I ended up staying in. That while I was on Preble, I always talked about them, but Preble, that strike team on Preble was always like near and dear to me and my, and my favorite, the, the dynamic between Roman and, and Matthias, the no filter drama that, that Guthrie could always bring. And then the relationship between Dice and, and Newton. And then when Segura was there, who's now senior chief, having an opportunity to mentor him when he's a first class will always be something near and dear to me. That's awesome. So like my whole time, my whole time, I wanted to emulate you know, Jason is a really good guy, takes care of his people. He's funny, doesn't take anything serious. Dave was always a guy that took care of his sailors, always looked out for him, always, always cared for him. And then in 2010, when I made chief, I was in a recruiting district Miami, and the CMC at that time was a guy named Eddie Knight. And he's another person that really changed like my career at that point in time because he always put out that your sailors come first and the day that you put yourself before your sailors is the day you either you need to retire you need to leave the mess right and so i always try to put my sailors first whether they saw it or not at all the times but i always had a plan for each one of them to make sure they succeeded in their professional life their personal life inside the navy or outside the navy i didn't care what their decision was but i knew i was going to set them up that's what i try to do and that's good that's good leadership and i feel like there's this big stigma right now where like everybody's talking about toxic leadership. I don't know if you like I'll hop on TikTok or Instagram reels or from time to time or whatever, but there's a big thing going on about toxic leadership. And I'm like, yeah, but you got to remember the entitlement of the kids that are coming into the military nowadays. That toxic level is even higher. You know, you're, you're trying to clash two different generations together. Yeah. I'm fortunate that I work at, there's only, a couple E5s. Um, I don't, of course, I'm a, I'm a GS12, so I don't, I don't deal with it. Like I don't get involved. Like when the 
they used to have a command senior chief that would come by and ask me questions. And I was like, I'm not involved in that anymore. Or he would call my desk and be like, hey, have you seen IS-1? I'd be like, no. He's like, do you know where he is? I'm like, I'm working for first classes are over. Yeah. Good right. luck. And I would just hang up. <laughs> like, You're like, it's not in my contract. Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, no. But I mean, I think like, you know, if I look back on it, of course, I was Gen X, you know, broken home, grew up single parents bouncing back and forth between aunts and grandparents and stuff like that. I mean, when I joined the Navy, those chiefs and senior chiefs were, I mean, salty. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, you're still looking at, you're still meshing generations and stuff. It's just that we didn't have like a social media platform or all this stuff they have now. I mean, we didn't have cell phones back then. So you're still meshing generations. I just think that there needs to be like more understanding from both sides and more communication from both sides. I think everybody could come up to an agreement. I mean, there's I don't know anybody that can't get along with their grandparents. Yeah, right. <laughs> you, know you get free candy when you go there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some that's what probably some of these chiefs look like to compared to some of the the junior sailors that are coming in or junior enlisted personnel that are coming in the military today. I mean, I, I saw an officer the other day that was 05. I, I swear he couldn't have been over 20 years old. And I was like, I mean, and my, my boss is retired 06. And he looked at him and he was like, what the? And I thought that kid was a teenager. I was That's like, insane. <laughs> I was like, yeah, man, we're just getting older. So <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm not too old. I'm, I'm 36. Oh, by the way, in 98, I was in seventh or eighth grade, by the way. Oh, okay. 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 Yeah. Just making sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was born in 85. I joined when I was 24 so I did a bunch of stuff before I came in and then I uh this is where we ended up oh I see yeah I joined the, I joined at 19 so it's a little bit different it's I think it's better it's smarter to come in when you're a little bit older you know you don't get caught up in all the underage barracks drinking stuff yeah I think well I don't know I was kind of still in that like window but I feel like yeah I was more sensible in getting out of trouble per se like making a slightly smarter decisions I don't know. Mm. Maybe that's a guesstimation. But talking about people who changed like careers and stuff like that, do you remember um guys weren't person? Oh yeah. He was senior chief on Preble with us. Yeah, I definitely remember. Yeah, when he was the department LCPO for ops on Preble, I remember I got to Preble, carrier sailor. You know, I thought I was hot shit, but I was actually not hot shit. Mm -hmm. Changed my whole perspective on life and just kind of how to like view things and just task oriented things and just, you know, pick one thing, do it at a time. And then he, uh, my LPO at the time, Craig, OS1 Craig. Well, now he's an OSC, I believe. Mm -hmm. He reinforced that same thing because they were friends on the outside of work or whatever. And so he would just take whatever, he was a senior chief at the time, but um, he would take whatever he said and just, you know, pushed that motto even forward. So the between the two of them, that pair, like that, that kind of got me set on track. Like initially when I got to Preble, because I was just like, you know, big carrier sailor, you know, like the jobs are just completely different. They're all over the place. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, on a big deck, you can hide. And I hid well. <laughs> on a small boy, you've got like not only your primary job, but like three other jobs that you have to do. And everybody's, that was, I think, a, a problem when they went to, it might've been before you came in the Navy, but they were, they were back, like, I think in like the 2000, early 2000, they were trying to do like minimum manning type stuff. They were trying to do more with less people. And so they started swimming down the manning on on ships and whatnot, and it just ended up snowballing into people just being overworked. And we'd be on deployment. I remember deployment in 2006. I was doing VBSS and standing port and starboard watch. And I, I mean, it was like 30, 36-hour days were just common. That's crazy. You know? 
Yeah, and it was just running us down, just beating us down. But fortunately, like later on, they they started, you know, increasing the manning and putting it back to where it should be. It's still low. Yeah, it's definitely still low. Only in certain areas, though. Like I noticed that like ITs have a ton of people. Yeah, but nobody else does. Yeah, I noticed that as well. Like, we have an IT department in our office, and there's like they're like stacked. And I'm just like, why are there? Why do we have so many of them? They don't. Like, <laughs> they don't do anything. Yeah, it's, re- it's really an easy job to kind of weasel into. Well, I don't know. To get certified is really easy. You just have to like read a book, take a test, done. Yeah, right. It's not too bad. I'm actually dealing with that myself. I'm trying to get a couple certifications to kind of get more money. But. Yeah, that's good. I mean, definitely, I think continued education, especially if something is going to give you more money or just, a, you know, I'm older. So I, I think continued learning as you get older is good for your mind so you don't get, I guess, stale. I like to still take college and stuff like that now. So Yeah, I signed my, so once I got my degree, I used two months of my GI Bill and then I signed the rest over to my son. And then, so he's got like 34 months or so. Yeah. But I'm going to tell you right now, if he doesn't use it, <laughs> I will find a way. Yeah, I'm the same way. I gave my son my GI Bill as well, but if he doesn't use it, then I'll, I'll use it. But that's one thing I was going to tell you about reason I wished my command. So when I first got hired at CMS APAC, they were an Air Force command and they transferred to the Navy like a couple months after that. Oh, okay. But when they were in Air Force Command, the civilians would actually get tuition assistance for college. Wow. <laughs> However, the Navy doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was, I was like, you guys really get tuition assistance? They're like, yeah. And I was like, oh my God. And then they switched to the Navy and they're like, oh, by the way, tuition assistance is gone. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, guys. I think that would be like a DOD policy, not a service based policy. But well, you saw. What happened to TA, right? Yeah. Like just to the Navy in general, you can't even use it in a four-year contract? Mm-hmm. Or in a, your first four-year, sorry. Your first four-year. Is it your first four or first two? So you can't use it within your first three years, and you can't use it if you only have 12 months left on your contract. Oh, wow. So you have to basically a five- or six-year contract is the only way you're going to be able to use TA and only after three years of, of already being in. Man, that sucks. Yeah. it's um. That's kind of absurd. It is. I think they're trying to push the Navy community college thing now. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure the reasoning behind that. I mean, maybe just because they ran out of TA and they had to cut people's TA short. Was that in 2018? Yeah, it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> yeah, like 2018, they ran out of TA. And so they had to make some changes. And this was probably some secretary of education. Just, just like big idea. Yeah, we need we need more money or we don't. Yeah. <laughs> More changes, more uniforms. That's what we <laughs> yeah, let's change uniforms again. Yeah, seriously. God. Let's change it up a bit. What was your favorite port visit that you ever went to? Oh, man. Favorite port visit. 24 years. 24 years. I mean, I went to some crazy ones. I would say, like, craziest port visit was definitely Thailand. Thailand? Yeah, you, you could take Phuket or, or Pattaya. They're both crazy. Oh, man. I mean, it was just, I remember. So, by the appointment in 98, we were, we basically hit no ports on the way in. You know, we hit, like, Bahrain and stuff in the, in the Gulf. And then we hit Phuket on the way out. And they were all strict. They were like, hey... No jet skis, no motorcycles. No fun. <laughs> yeah, like they were, you know, telling us you can't do this stuff. I remember standing outside on the main street, like nine in the morning, had a beer in my hand and just watching, watching high members of the chain of command just fly down main street on motorcycles. <laughs> 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 and then, uh, I mean, it was, it was just kind of crazy. Like the amount of stuff that went on, anything you could think of those 
was going on in it. It was nuts. Doesn't that sound about right, though? Don't do this, but I'm going to. Well, other people did it, too. Like, yeah. I mean, I got drove back to the ship on a, by a girl on the back of her moped. And <laughs> I mean, people were saying stuff, but they didn't like send me to DRB or anything. I mean, it was a little bit different back then. True. OK, fair. So we pulled into, I believe it's called La Spezia, Italy. And um, I got to take a train down to Rome. I stopped in Pisa and saw the Leaning Tower of Pisa and took a train down to Rome, spent the night in Rome. Nice. That was my favorite, favorite port. Just Thailand was the craziest port. Well, it was called La Spezia. Yeah, well, I did the same thing. I took a, a bus to Rome. I mean, seeing the Colosseum and all that stuff was just amazing. I really liked it. We went to the Vatican and I mean, I'm not a religious person, but just seeing, seeing all the architecture and eating authentic Italian food and drinking wine was just, I don't know, it was a once in a lifetime opportunity I felt. It's awesome. Even just walking through the gates of Vatican City or just driving through the gates of Vatican City, you're like, holy shit, this is real. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was crazy. You know, you went into the Sistine Chapel. So what's funny is we walked up, we were going to go to the Sistine Chapel. We walked up and there wasn't that big of a line. And so we we're like, okay, we'll, we'll go to the Vatican and then we'll come back out and we'll go into the Sistine Chapel. So we go in the Vatican and take some pictures. We come out and all of a sudden the line for the Sistine Chapel is like two miles long. Oh man. I was like, forget it. So we just left. Yeah, I didn't get to go. My Liberty buddy. So when you get into the chapel, like where like the yeah. painting on the ceiling is and all that stuff, they don't let you take pictures in there. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we obviously, you know, being shitty junior sailors, we're all standing around in a circle. And my buddy's got a camera and he's pointing it up. And uh, he just happened to get where like the hands are touching. Yeah. And it came out. I got to hit him up, but it came out clear as day. That's awesome. And I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> but they're walking around yelling at people. No cameras. Put your cameras away. Mm, yeah. I think he kind of almost had to do it. As long as it didn't have a flash on it, I wouldn't be mad. Yeah. Right. I think they were just trying to preserve like the artwork. Probably. And then also like get more people to come in. True. If you want to see it. In. Yeah, this is also before uh, like high tech cell phones. Like the iPhone yeah. four, I think was out. Yeah, maybe three G. I don't know. Whatever. I think I got a tattoo there. Oh no, I did. Yeah, <laughs> I think I got a tattoo there. <laughs> I think I did. This is Quando Aroma <laughs> when in Rome. Oh, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. There's uh, three of us that have the same tattoo. That's funny. Like assholes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was stationed on the uh, the Howard, and there was a group of guys that they got like a, a Navy ship tattooed on them, and it said friendship. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, There's there a bunch of them that had it. There was like 10 or 12 of them that had that, sh- had that ship tattooed on them. It was funny. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever get weird looks? Because I know you have a full sleeve, right? Yeah. Just the one? Yeah, just the one. I was going to get the other one done, but then COVID and I just haven't gone back. Oh, okay. But like, did you ever get like anybody ever like weird eyeing you? Like, cause when you wear khakis, obviously you can see like your whole sleeve. No, not really. I mean, I know that they were, I mean, cause they told me like, they didn't tell me knowing that they could see my uniform or my sleeve or whatnot. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I heard them say like, you know, I don't like it. Like say someone has a full sleeve and they're in NWUs, I prefer them not to roll their sleeves up. I'd rather have their sleeves down. So, I mean, I know that there were CMCs out there or senior leadership out there that felt that way. So for the most part, I would keep my sleeves down, you know, unless it was, unless I had to wear khakis or something like that. But I mean, that's, that's kind of the reason why I did it. I just, uh, I know I felt a little more professional. And then plus, like when I was doing VBSS, I did a lot of VBSS in 2002, 2006, 2008, 2009. Jesus. I would wear my sleeves down just because I didn't want. Anything identifiable. Oh, fair. Okay. From 
the people that we were talking to or taking, like pulling over the smugglers, we were confiscating their stuff. You know what I mean? Stuff like that. Yeah. And they're like, oh, look, a koi fish. I remember you. Yeah. <laughs> God, son of a bitch. <laughs> I mean, that's why we, we had call signs. We all had different, you know, we didn't go use each other's names or anything like that. So for those listening, VBSS is Visit Board Search and Seizure. I think it used to be called Vessel Board Search and Seizure. I could be wrong. Yeah, it was. I've always known it as being Visit. So okay. I'm not sure. But like when I started, I started, like I said, I started in 2002, but I hadn't gone to any actual training, right? So we were in the Gulf, and we had a couple guys that actually had gone through training, and they were on Liberty, and they moved the Liberty bus. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and, so, and so the CEO was basically like, look, if I can't trust you to not move the Liberty bus while you're on Liberty, I can't trust you with guns on a foreign ship. And so <laughs> me and this other guy... Me and this other FC, we both worked out a lot. We both had good gun scores. So they're like, hey, I'm going to take these two guys off, put these two guys on, and just give them basically OJT. And so that's what they did. Then after the brig, I went to the USS Howard DG83 out of San Diego. Okay. And that's when I went to the actual like security reaction force basic advanced and then the vbss team trainer there what was your favorite the vbss team trainer was amazing i was in a course that no longer exists but it was taught by blackwater and they were all ex-seals and i mean it was phenomenal it was the best class i've ever taken we were like the first or second class to go through i was gonna say that sounds like fun oh my god it was amazing i mean we did every morning it was hand-to-hand combat and then we were at the, the fbi range shooting we were i mean it was just non-stop it was great and i was a class leader so i got picked on a lot which i loved nice <laughs> and yeah, it was a phenomenal course that was definitely the most fun but so then I actually had actual training and then we did a lot of boardings in 2006, 2008, 2008. I think we only did like one and then we did some in 2009. 2006 was OIF. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. Iraqi freedom. Yeah. Yeah. That ended right after my, like three quarters of the way through my first deployment that ended. Oh, okay. And then enduring freedom started on that same deployment. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was interesting. They would, uh, you know, you go out there and, you talk to the Iraqis and they would say the Iranians are bad and the Iranians would say the Iraqis are bad. And then you back off and then you come up a little bit later and you see both of them just hanging out, talking and shooting the shit. And you're like, Hey, I thought you guys didn't like each other. And they're like, ah, ha, 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 ha. You know what I mean? Jesus. It's like that Spider-Man meme where everybody's pointing at everybody else. Yeah, exactly. It <laughs> takes you a while to develop a, you know, some situational awareness to find out who's who in the zoo and what's going on. So, right. Well, I think I'm going to wrap it up here for today. Sounds good, brother. All right. So thank you all for uh, tuning in. If you stayed this far in listening, (laughs) (laughs) we'll be back again next week. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to the Keep It Moving podcast. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at keepitmoving underscore podcast to keep up with the latest topics. 